Welcome back to the Management Lab. I'm Sean Hansen from Saunders College of Business at Rochester Institute of Technology. And I'm Ori Gall from the University of Sydney Business School in Sydney, Australia. Hey, Sean. Hey, how's it going? I'm okay. I'm okay. Yeah, it's been a while. How are you doing? Pretty well. I think I've told you we one of our fellow friends has been visiting from Cologne, and uh, mm-hmm. it's been nice hanging out with him and uh, his daughter over the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. What What were you doing over there? Was he Was it Was this a a business visit or a, a holiday? Oh, he's in town. So they're doing sort of a a, a little bit of a American tour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um so charlotta his daughter is uh is my goddaughter and uh and so i think he felt that they had to make a swing through rochester but uh his wife and son are not going to join them until they go to miami next week mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's yeah, something right <laughs> we gotta do a, yeah we gotta do a path through rochester which as i've said many times is uh much better than people would guess uh we gotta do a pass through rochester but then the whole family will get together in miami how long it was did he drive up from New York City? Uh no 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 they flew into Rochester. Okay. How long is the drive from It's actually easy like, the great one of the great things about a, a you know a smaller town a, a mid market town is uh the you can get in and out of Rochester's airport so fast like if you know how they say you should get to the airport 2 hours ahead of time if I get to the airport 15 minutes not 15 minutes but very shortly before my flight I would have no worries. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of Cleveland in that way, which is um... yeah. Uh, Rochester's about half the size of Cleveland. We should say Uri and I studied together in at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, Ohio, which is my hometown. Um, so don't you bash Cleveland. Don't you bash Cleveland right now. <laughs> I, I can't. I can't help myself. Don't you dare. <laughs> These were five years of my life that I I repeatedly I repeatedly refer to as as doing time. I did time. Oh my Cleveland. God. No, I'm sure it's lovely these days. Well, to any of our listeners from Cleveland, uh, I am a total hometowner. Uh, I still watch my now Guardians, formerly Indians, my Browns, my Cavs. I'm a believer. I'm a believer in. I'm a believer in Believe Land. <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was, I was dropping my kids off this morning to um, daycare and school, and uh, I was driving behind a, a pickup truck that had a Trump sticker on, on the back of it. So I was about, I don't know, 30 meters um, away from it. So I didn't see clearly what the sticker said. Just I saw it said Trump. And I was thinking, oh, crap. What those toxic American politics have made their way all the way down here to Melbourne. How How is this possible? <laughs> oh, please. I'm sure there are people like that in Australia. And no, don't but act then, like Cleveland. Oh, you're OK. You're just bashing America in general. No, hold on. But as I, as I got closer. I was going to say Cuyahoga County for sure did not vote. Uh, did not go Trump. I don't think anybody knows what Cuyahoga um, County is. It's Cleveland. That is the county where the city of Cleveland, Ohio is. But anyways, I was driving closer to the truck. I realized it was just uh, the name of the business. It was uh, like a construction business in the name of (laughs) Trump Trump construction. (laughs) Are you sure they didn't rename it to tap into uh, political headwinds and attract a a certain client base? I am not, but it definitely wasn't an election sticker. So um, I I was somewhat relieved. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Believe me, as you know, from our discussions, I am no happier than you about the state of politics in, in my uh, home nation, but. No. And I salute you for saying this on the one hand and still being, and being able to stay an American patriot at the same time. I'm sure that's not an easy task. That's right. Yeah. Oh, you got to believe in the ideals, man. 
Sure, especially when that's pretty much all that's left. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not willing to go that way yet. Although I have my concerns, to be sure. Yeah, no, and I'm. I'm. I'm definitely exaggerating to all of our American <laughs> listeners. I. I love your country. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you have enough uh, American friends that you couldn't possibly not have a certain affinity. It's not just that. I'm also there's a a good amount of gratitude because I I did get a a really good free education there for five years, which is, I don't know that there's a similar system quite that way in anywhere else in the world. With doctoral programs, every, every, anyone who's listening, who's like paying college tuition bills is like, what do you mean free? Uh, doctoral programs in the U S generally, you don't pay tuition and you get paid a very small stipend Yeah, uh, yeah. to study, but yes. Yeah. Well, I, I, I saw a, a uh, a piece recently that had like the top 20 universities in the world listed. And I got to tell you, man, the U.S. Uh, 16 or 17 of the top 20 are all in the U.S. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you need to remain skeptical about the the validity of these of these surveys. I, I never know quite what they mean, except that they're used for promotional purposes like like there's no tomorrow so we actually got yeah. um, i'm not sure which which um ratings or rankings you're referring to but i know one of them got published recently might have been the financial times or some i don't know one of those and uh the university of sydney um jumped up in the rankings by like 15 spots or something i think we're in the top 20 or 25 or whatever it is and everybody was so excited nice awesome and um yeah no my my take on this is, is way more cynical as you can imagine <laughs> They actually, we, yeah, everyone, everybody yeah. got sent. I know our, our well, right, everybody, program. everybody got sent an email to prompt them yeah. to to men, to uh, put in the new rankings into their email signatures. <laughs> um. So anyway, that's that. Yeah. Right. Right. Our MIS program at RIT, our MIS program in one of the ranking services was ranked number three in the country, which you know we're a smaller program compared to a lot of the bigger uh, state schools or R one schools, um, and so. For years and years, we called attention to it, and I think we should. I think it's been a great – the program has had great success. Our students get these awesome positions. They're doing just – they're killing it, right? But I'm cynical enough to know that rankings move. You know, these rankings are based on all kinds of crazy things. And so it shifted off of the number three, and a couple of our, like, marketing folks were like, oh, oh, what's what are we going to do? And I'm like, just relax. <laughs> Just relax and focus on 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 developing the students and and uh, what they need to be successful, and everything else will fall into place. Yeah, but I think the you know calling attention to these numbers is actually relevant to the topic of the conversation that we're going to have today, uh, which will focus or uh, on on people analytics, right? So the the whole idea that mm -hmm. we can use a lot of data, seemingly objective data to make smart and objective decisions about uh, the way we manage the workforce in our organizations. And I think like it was completely inadvertent. I think the conversation we just had and the kind of cynical tone that um, to a degree, both of us took towards the, these rankings. I think there's some truth to that in, in the way that we, we approach people, we should approach, I think people analytics and, and the whole idea behind it. So, Maybe to get us get us Agreed. started, um, do you want to do a very quick recap or kind of a summary of what people analytics actually means to everybody who doesn't know what what this is? So people analytics is one of the really intriguing things about this is that it is an emerging 
set of technologies. It's using uh, data, data analytics uh, as a broad category, focused on focusing it on the aspects of human resource management. Uh, you know, identifying and and uh, advancing and helping and training and supporting uh, and analyzing the performance of people within organizations. And one of the things that's interesting to me is that you see several different labels get used interchangeably here. So people analytics is one that that uh, I think is probably the, the, the top label right now. Um, you and I have, in some of our own research, have have certainly used that label. But you also see the same uh, sets of tools referred to as HR analytics, so human resource analytics, or human resource management analytics, or workforce analytics. These are all essentially right now interchangeable terms for the same phenomenon, which is using using analytical tools uh, for uh, the management of people within organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, I think it is worth noting that it is very much an emergent field. So the tools are in use in organizations, but the, we'll talk through some of the evidence that exists so far, but it's it's still sort of coming through, meaning I don't think there are hard and fast uh, guidelines for what works, what doesn't work, yeah. uh, and, and where it's going to go and, and the total efficacy of these tools right now. If I, I, I agree, of course. If I can quickly make three three points about some of the main things that I think drive the the idea of uh, idea of people analytics. First is the idea that um, the more data we have about organizations and the people that work in organizations, um, the better we'll be able to make decisions um, that will benefit the business. Right. So more data means basically equals more knowledge. More knowledge equals making being able to make better decisions being able to make better decisions will drive organizational performance that's kind of a a very simplistic equation but i, I think it kind of and it, it does stand it is valid in terms of how people think about this well and it's also it's also a core underpinning of all data analytics right more data is better essentially in terms of detecting patterns and and supporting decision making yeah that's true and i mean we've seen organizations use you know what people refer to as big data in other organizational domains right in in production processes for instance or um in risk management or risk assessment if you think about the whole credit industry to manage supply chains so it's not like we haven't used big data before we definitely have but it's the difference here is that we apply big data to the management of people rather than processes or inanimate objects right that's the difference right. here and also, it's the application of of algorithms to big data, All right? Um, is this your second point? Just since we said three points, is that the second one? Sure, let's make it the, the <laughs> second one. So it's the application of algorithms to big data, right? It's not just the collection and storage of big data. We actually want to apply algorithms to the big data to find patterns in it to inform better, more objective, more rational, if you will, decision making. And in in the background, although in some instances it's less in the background than in others, and that's my third point, Sean, keep track. Nice, nice. Stay alert, stay alert. Is that we need to be circumspect in in the degree to which we rely on human um, cognition, right? Human decision making, because we are notoriously biased. We're, you know, we rely on gut feelings and 
we get tired and as we get tired we make you know worse decisions and there's all sorts of social pressures and political pressures that we, we might be prone to and so algorithms don't experience any of those things right they're rational automatic or automated or semi-automated by definition and, I, and i'm just reciting that line of argument i'm not mm -hmm, saying i necessarily mm -hmm. agree with it objective um systems right that's what they do they, they don't operate in any other way and that's why they can either complement or in some cases even replace human decision making yeah and i think the psychology literature does offer some foundations for that last point one of the things have you ever seen this this research on like judges um sentencing decisions there's uh, I'll, I'll have to track it down please no one uh worry about this and, and i'll bring it up in our next session but it's something like judges are way harsher in their sentencing before lunch than they are after lunch <laughs> like after they've had a sandwich or contented they get much more lenient in their sentencing than when they're like cranky and hungry so there's lots of small things that can influence human decision-making and bias human decision-making. So now that we've talked about some of the main principles or assumptions, I guess, behind people analytics, um, let's quickly talk about some of the main areas of application um, that we have seen both in, in our practice and in the research that we, we've read and conducted ourselves. And I, I guess there are several main areas where people analytics has been used so far. Maybe most prominently is in hiring um, and recruitment. Yeah, That's, recruitment and hiring. There are many, many applications, people analytics applications out there that are aimed to assist HR professionals in managing the whole recruitment process. Mm -hmm. Right, because it's a resource-heavy process, especially in large organizations that have, I don't know how many different how many dozens or hundreds of open positions at any given time and thousands of 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 um applications that they have to process on an ongoing basis and when you do it manually it becomes very taxing very quickly so the need to bring in something more systematic and automated and again quote unquote objective um is is pretty obvious so that's one area where we see a lot of um systems being used for instance to um identify traits in in applicants that we as an organization find desirable and pull those out and you know and and go with them but do it algorithmically rather than manually and i can see that you're raising your hand like a good student in class i'm going to let you speak so i was just going to say this a second key application i think flows from that which is then retention and compensation right like how do we make sure once we have hired the people that we want how do we keep them how do we uh, make sure that we build an environment that that retains those strong performers and and matches compensation to what's going to be appropriate to keep them around? Yeah. And so if you just complete the the life cycle there, there are also applications that um, handle um, firing and and termination decisions. And so there are various predictive algorithm algorithms that are meant to help people or organizations understand um, when a certain person is likely to quit their job or what is the likelihood that a certain cohort of individuals is going to quit their jobs and make decisions based on these predictions before those things have actually happened. So that's the whole area of, of predictive analy analytics, which we'll talk about more in a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. And there is one middle 
there is one middle uh, set of applications, which is learning and development, right? Like, can we use these tools to help us uh, drive training or learning within the organization that hopefully reduces the sort of emergence of the types of things that would drive people out of the organization or would drive people into, you know, categories that, that start to be detrimental to the organization. Yeah. And the idea there is to develop learning programs that are more individualized and personalized to the specific needs of each individual, because we're able to understand and know these individuals better based on the data that we collect about them and the analysis of this data. Then rather mm -hmm. than having, you know, cookie cutter programs that we run across the whole business or cohorts or departments or functions or whatever, we'd be able to develop these in a more personalized manner and therefore increase their efficacy and efficiency. And uh, yep. I guess another area where we see people analytics being used is performance evaluation, mm -hmm. right? basically tracking what, and, and that might be a, 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 an area that's a bit more controversial, perhaps mm -hmm. for some people anyway. And, you know, you, you will see um, headlines in newspapers every once in a while, um, especially with large companies like Amazon or, uh, you know, places like this, where you, you have lots of people working in precarious positions often and the degree of of surveillance that they're under um, that's often alg algorithmically driven to make sure that they do exactly what the organization asks them to do and that they're you know meeting their KPIs so you're right that the the performance evaluation piece is somewhat controversial particularly with regard to these tools but that is also a space where, performance evaluation that is that is an environment in which the human elements and sometimes the human uh tendency toward error or bias is also quite high right when you look at across organizations issues of performance evaluation you get quite a bit of evidence around you know individual preferences and biases you know managers will preference certain types of workers over others and so um yes it's controversial but it is also one where maybe we we under recognize the the flaws in the current systems of performance evaluation in organizations yeah i, th I think there's I, I was gonna say i'm torn but i'm not torn that's that's an overstatement i i think there are real problems with relying exclusively on human judgment when it comes to managing people and organizations and yeah. uh, i think it's difficult or to individual ignore. judgment um okay sure I think it's difficult to ignore the ample evidence we have of the biases and heuristics and inconsistencies in, in the way that we process information and make decisions. I, I don't think anyone reasonable would, would say these are not true. But I think we need to stay at the same time um, skeptical uh, when it comes to the application of these tools to um, either augment or replace human um, human judgment and human decision making. I think- uh, Agreed. I think we need to be, um, you know, we need to be thoughtful in terms of how we incorporate these tools into the, into organizations to um, make the most out of them. And on that note, um, so we we have read a, a bunch of of um, studies in preparation for the conversation today, and many of them talk about some of the main drivers and and barriers to successfully implementing these these tools into organizations. And I think many people will be interested in in having an understanding of what these are. Mm -hmm. So Sean, I'm going to drop this in your lap. What are the main, let's start with drivers. 
if if I'm a, um, a manager in an organization, an HR manager, and I want to start using these tools in my organization, what are the things that I need to be most mindful of to make sure that I do this in the, in the best possible way? Yeah. So not to jump to sort of our takeaways yet, but uh, yeah, I think that the evidence on impediments is pretty uh, reasonable. Uh, there's some there's some good evidence on sort of impediments to effective use of these tools. A couple of the studies we looked at, by the way, are what are called systematic literature reviews, meaning that the studies themselves look at all multiple studies, as many as they can sort of gather that seem appropriate, and say, what can we glean from from all of these studies? So there was one uh, in particular, uh, Fernandez and Gallardo, Gallardo, and 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 they highlighted a couple of these, and and one I think is. It, it refers back to what you mentioned earlier. The more data is better data, right? The, a core premise underlying all these people analytics tools is that you have a large amount of data. But in a lot of organizations, you might not have a, a rich data set. And if you're implementing these tools without that rich data set to back it up, then the degree to which it's going to inform your decision making is going to be open to, to lots of questions, right? So access to data and uh, significant data sets about performance to make decisions, I think is a key limitation to effective application of these tools. But if I were to put a positive spin on it, if we were to emphasize drivers, then the driver would be have high quality data. Having data. And I would add to this, not just high quality data, but we have seen a couple of the studies that we looked at, and I forget which ones they are, but we can reference those later that said specifically just high quality data is not enough you want to have high quality data that reflect various aspects or or parts of the business mm -hmm. specifically around something like individual performance yeah individual performance but not just individual performance because you want to cross-reference individual performance with other other aspects of the business like for instance individual performance of people that work in the business with customer satisfaction or with mm -hmm. business productivity, however you measure it. So you want to be able to pull together high quality data from different areas in the business to cross-reference them to get really interesting insights and ask, answer really important strategic questions for the business that encompass more than just one area of the business, be it HR mm -hmm. or marketing, whatever it is, right? So you want to have these multiple sources of high quality data. So that's definitely one driver that we've seen across some of the studies that we looked at today. Yeah. Can I throw out a quick anecdote? Sure. My very first job out of college was with an organization then called MBNA America. It was a credit card company. It has since been bought by, I think, Bank of America long ago. And one of the things they measured was all of us had to spend a certain amount of time on the phone taking customer calls. And if any of you listening have ever taken customer calls, you probably want, uh, I'm not going to get controversial. You, you were probably miserable, right? Because if you work for a credit card company, taking customer calls, you're only getting calls from people who are pissed off and it's miserable. And one of the key measures that they always applied was average time on the phone, right? So they would look at different performers and they would say average time on the phone. But looking at that without also looking at customer satisfaction could lead to, to very uh, ill-founded decisions. To the degree, I remember I had one of my colleagues who 
she had the the lowest average. Like she was very tight. She would get through her calls very quickly. Well, we found out later she was dropping calls. She was like, just <laughs> if she got a controversial call where someone had a really tricky problem, she was hanging up. And so she had this metric that looked really good, but the customer satisfaction from her calls in particular were would have been miserable, right? So that just reinforces this idea that you need not singular data data points, but multiple data points and to be able to look at this from multiple vantage points. Okay, so we talked about data as, as one factor that drives successful adoption of, of people analytics. Another one is the, the technology itself. And there's various aspects that, that people should pay attention to here. And some of them may seem very trivial or basic, but that doesn't make them untrue, right? They're still They're still valid. And they're valid mm-hmm. because they've been examined in multiple studies in different contexts, by the way, not just in PA, PA being people analytics. Um, so for instance, the platform that we're going to put in place should be integrated with existing technologies that we have working in the business, Right. which anyone who who's listening to this might think, well, duh, obviously we want this to happen, but you, you would be surprised at the amount of times that it doesn't happen and the severity of the problems that this can create. Absolutely. Right. Right. So I think in particular, I think any of any, <laughs> any of our information systems colleagues, like anyone within the information systems field would know, yes, the integration piece is critical and it, it's one of the key insights that you get, but you're, you're right that a lot of organizations are operating in ways where the tools don't share information effectively. Right. And, and if it's not being, if the various software platforms that you are using within your organization are not exchanging data effectively, then again, you could be making completely ill-founded decisions. And just because there's a software tool telling you to do it doesn't mean it's going to be a valid decision. And we've seen seen something like this in our own research. So we uh, we studied a, a company here in Australia and, and, and they implemented a, a PA platform. And it was kind of a, an off-the-shelf, um, up-in-the-cloud platform that they, that they use because it's more affordable. And many smaller companies would gravitate in this direction just because it, it makes more sense for them rather than having to develop um, either in-house or with somebody else something from scratch which is going to be much more lengthy much more expensive laborious and the maintenance of this is going to be much more difficult and training is going to be more you know complicated so it makes a lot of sense to get one of these off-the-shelf systems but oftentimes the problem with these off-the-shelf systems is that they're not very well configurable Right, and, and that's where problems start in terms of integrations, integration with existing systems, and and what we saw in in our study was something very trivial, that that system wasn't able to import data from Microsoft Outlook from the email system and the calendar system, and it completely jumbled um, the the data that it brought in to the point that you know the decision makers in the business were not able to make good decisions based on this data because it misrepresented what was actually happening with people people's time, like whether they were engaged in one project or another or had or they, whether they were booked for a meeting or not. So it, it kind of messed up the whole thing. And and actually forced them to start ignoring the data coming out of the, the system they had acquired, right? So they bought this tool to help them better get better visibility on what was happening inside the organization. And it 
it had the exact opposite effect where because of those errors and those fail failures of integration, they actually started ignoring key pieces of data because they said, well, you know, there's, there's error there. Yeah. So that integration piece of the technology itself is huge. Yeah. So if um, we can, can I touch on a third? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to talk about the third one. So we talked about technology and we talked about data and another uh, related piece is the the skills of the people that are meant to implement and use these systems and make decisions. Right. Based Meaning on... the HR professionals yes. most prominently, right? And this is a, a theme that's been, um, I think, mentioned in almost all of the studies that we looked at uh, uh, for today. The, mm -hmm. the lack of an analytical skills that many HR professionals um, have, right? Because these are, for the most part, people that have not been trained to develop their analytical skills, their their set of skills is very different for the most part. And but without these skills, you know, being able to um to read statistical reports, even basic descriptive reports, and understand what they actually mean, it's going to be very difficult to actually extract valuable information and make good decisions based on on these systems. Right, right. Particularly when we're dealing with higher algorithmic tools, right? You have. I think you often have in HR professionals, people who have experience reading reports, but if they don't understand the data that is being, being manipulated underneath that report that is sort of flowing into what's being presented to them, then uh, then there is a, a an important skills gap there. Yeah. So I think this is something that organizations need definitely need to be mindful of and, and proactively approach if they're thinking about using or implementing these tools to upskill or complement the skills. I'm sure it's necessarily a, a movement upwards, but definitely complement the skills of their HR professionals if that's needed to make sure that they're data savvy and, and analytically educated enough to uh, to make good use of these of these systems. Right. So that means to be able to read reports, even multivariate reports that kind of um mm -hmm represent relationships between multiple variables that we're interested in, but even design certain analytical analytical outputs like surveys or questionnaires that we might want to distribute to our to our workforce to be um, um to be able to um, make sense of them at a, at a later stage. So these are really important yeah. skills that HR professionals or professionals need to have. Yeah. And then I think a fourth one, and this is somewhat Again, from an information systems perspective, it's somewhat generic in the sense that almost any time you're adopting systems tools, this is a key question, is the, the role of management or higher management within the organization. Unless there is support for the tool and uh, commitment to refinement of the tool and its application, then it's often going to be misused. And so as a key enabler for effective use of people analytics, you have to have that upper management support and, and guidance and oversight piece. And let's just be clear, when we say support, it's not just financial support to see through the implementation of the system. It's also driving forward the message repeatedly, oftentimes over months and years, because these implementation processes can sometimes take time, especially if we're dealing with a relatively complex system or a very large organization consistently driving through the message that yes, we're committed to using this system and we're going to design the incentive system in the organization to make people want to use this system 
not just because they think it's cool, but also because they're going to be compensated for that properly, right? That's another important piece that oftentimes organizations mm-hmm. kind of overlook. They think, yeah, it's a cool system. It's really well designed. It meets exactly what we want to do, and therefore people are going to use it. Well, no, mm-hmm. it's not. It's not that simple. You have to design the incentive system in such a way that people will will actually be properly compensated for using the system in the way that you want them to use it. So that's something that I think managers need to be extremely aware of. Another piece of the the management um, element, I think, is, um, and I'm kind of reluctant to say it in, in the way that I'm going to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway, and, and then I'm going to express my my skepticism about why, why I'm saying it the way that I am. <laughs> I'm having an open-minded culture. Right. Having a culture in place that actually encourages people to speak their minds and to express views that are evidence-based views and to encourage managers and decision makers to assess these views, evidence-based views with an open mind and be ready to change their own judgments based on these views that have been expressed to them. So, so talk me through that meaning. So what I take, I take you to be saying that managers have to give people the freedom to offer feedback uh, regularly, con- con- you know, consistently offering feedback on efficacy or or flaws or you know upsides, downsides with regard to these tools to fine tune it going forward. And if people feel like, well, I'm being told to use this tool, but I feel I see flaws. Let's say, you know, I'm all of us have used a piece of software where we thought ah, this thing's kind of a piece of shit. And I'm not saying it, this about any of these tools in particular. But if we have critiques, we want a culture in which people can express those critiques without feeling like they're going to be reprimanded for for offering feedback, right? Yeah, but it's more than that. It's I don't think it only pertains to the system itself. Um, so if the system offers evidence-based information about the efficacy of our, I don't know, promotion policy, for instance, right? And somebody brings it up at a meeting and says to their manager, look, the way we're promoting people in this department doesn't make any sense because A, B, and C and A, B, C are supported by the data that that I can see here. And Mm -hmm. if there's a culture in this organization where employees cannot challenge their managers and there's a significant element of, of, I don't know, some sort of an uneven power relationship across organizational levels, then that's not going to allow this manager to say, you know what, you're right. I'm going to rethink this policy or we're going to have a conversation about this and see what we can do about it. There's going to be a political, it's going to be interpreted as a political challenge or a power challenge and the whole thing is going to be drowned down. So that's what I mean by an open culture, a culture that allows candid evidence-based conversations to take place with a view to possibly changing the way that we do things based on the evidence presented to us. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, what that one, yeah. Uh, I, I did say before I'm I'm saying I'm, I was going to say this, but I'm going to be skeptical about this. Is because it's very easy to say this, but it's much more difficult to implement it, right? Because I think the name of the person is Linda Spurchich, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing the name right, but she wrote a paper on organizational culture, maybe back in the 1980s, but it's kind of a classic. And one of the things she said in that paper that has stuck with me since uh, I read it in the first time when I was a young PhD student was organizations don't have cultures. Organizations are cultures. Mm, interesting. So you can't just 
you know, because you want to redesign a culture based on some preconceived notions that you may have. It's a much more sophisticated, complex, messy process that can take a lot of time. And there's no guarantee that it's going to end up where you want it to end up. Yeah. Uh, I will say just as an aside, (laughs) academic environments are one where that's sort of a notorious thing, right? Where it's sort of like um, policing of speech is a notorious issue. And I do, I lean toward believing in the power of senior executives to to form and to influence cultures. You can't single-handedly do it, but you can certainly have an influence. So if, uh, just to uh, close this point on organ, uh, academic environments, there are a lot of universities that, that we're familiar with because of our inter- interactions with colleagues where junior faculty, that is to say newly hired assistant professors, are sort of treated almost like children, where you should be seen and not heard, where uh, junior faculty learn very quickly that they should keep their opinions to themselves. And one of the things I always loved at at RIT, where I am now, is that from my first day here, which was as an assistant professor, I never felt that I couldn't state my opinion. As as a person who tends to have lots of opinions, that would have been a problem for me, right? And I think there are a lot of organizations where you where you have that, or a lot of universities, for example, where you have that sort of the culture is, you no, know, keep your mouth shut. Once you get tenure, you can say what you want to say, but until then, shut up. Mm. Um, and I think that is the type of thing that, that deans or senior executives in an organization can model to the organization. No, we're going to be open. Um, Total aside, my first we we can cut this out, but I remember my one of my uh, when we were ju- had just entered our PhD program. Do you remember they hired a new dean, and it was a controvert? It wound up being controversial because the guy got run out within about two years. I think I know who you mean. Yes, and he called all the PhD students into the room at the same time, and he said, "Yeah, we want to get your opinion about what's happening in the organization because you're a part of the organization." And so we want your input and we want your feedback. And the first question, this guy was a guy who had a background in labor relations. And the first question that he got, I shit you not, he said, I, I don't know if you were in the room at the time, but he his his response was, well, it's kind of a stupid question <laughs> because I don't even remember what followed the because. As soon as the guy says that's kind of a stupid question, it's like everything you've just all the throat clearing you've done for the last 15 minutes where you said our opinion counted just got negated by you saying that's a stupid question. So you can have that sort of role where senior management, senior managers have to have to demonstrate and really model openness to the organization. And I think if they do model that that openness, I think it can. Sometimes it takes time, but I think it can uh, have the the effect of engendering a culture of openness and inquiry and and uh, feedback it's definitely important and it's definitely much more difficult to achieve that without like we said before top management support because they do have um top managers have a you know a, a position of power and influence within the organization so it's just natural that yeah. they have and, more more of an impact an outsized voice certainly yeah so we talked about some of the main main drivers and some of the papers that we talked about that sorry that we read for today also to discuss some of the main impediments and i think to a degree the impediments are kind of the mirror image 
of the drivers for yeah the inverse the most part yeah so so lack of high quality data or the existence of what we often refer to as data silos within organizations mm-hmm. right the identity would have uh, a department like a marketing or production or customer support or hr or what have you that would have their own databases that and these databases that would capture their own operations wouldn't be shared across the business with other functions so nobody knows what the other department is doing so in the absence of of this incorporation of different data sources we can't make um good decisions that actually reflect different aspects of the business so it's definitely going to limit the efficacy of of these systems so that's kind of an inverse point to the one that we made before um in terms of people some of the one of the points that that was made by a number of these studies is again uh, kind of a mirror image of what we said before which is the lack of data literacy in hr right the ability to do design surveys to um to understand read and understand different forms of statistical analyses so this is definitely going to be an obstacle another one that i thought was very interesting and i think pertinent in many businesses uh, is the understanding that hr can actually have strategic significance within the business and I think it's still the case in many organizations that HR is kind of a service function. But with a strong power base. In what way? So you say a service function where you sort of, uh, it, it, traditionally in a lot of businesses, there was the designation between revenue drivers and cost drivers, right? Or revenue centers, sorry, revenue centers and cost centers, where the revenue centers are the parts of the business that make money. And the cost centers are the parts of the business that don't directly make money. They cost money, but they provide services and elements that presumably support or reinforce the revenue centers. And so HR would traditionally be framed as a cost center. Sure, It's not generating money. It's costing money. But they have a, a huge base of power because of control over things like hiring like you know retention efforts like compensation and performance probably most of all performance evaluation if they have a strong role in the regime of performance evaluation then they have a huge base of power within the organization sure but to play devil's advocate and actually no that's not true i shouldn't say that because i think we agree but we just we are highlighting different aspects of the same point that we're i think trying to surface here which is despite this part that you're describing, which I agree with the description, I think when it comes to the, for the most part, again, that's not every, all organizations, but I think it's pretty common that in the strategic process of making decisions, making evaluations, figuring out what we are about as an organization, which markets we want to compete in, who are our main competitors, what are our main services and products? What do we want to be known for? You know, these sort of high-level strategic decisions, for the most part, HR departments are on the receiving end of these decisions, and they don't actively contribute right. to these conversations. That's what I mean by that. Yeah, I think that that's something we could debate. I agree with that statement, but I still find that HR departments assert power in ways that that might be untied to their strategic role. Fine, that's that's fine. But I think the point that that some of these studies were making was that 
one reason why people don't get as much value from these systems from these people and analytic systems as they could is because hr departments still don't have this strategic significance within the business because it's okay. historically been the case that like you said before they they have a position of power because they control all these really important resources people especially in in knowledge rich, rich industries where people are actually uh a significant source of value because they're experts at something, whatever it is that they do. It's not the same thing as being able to generate insights of strategic significance. That's not been the case historically, but these systems, that's the argument, actually allow HR departments by incorporating all these different data sources and feeding them into algorithms. They're actually able to generate these insights that might have strategic significance. Like, what is the impact when we reconfigure the way groups work throughout whatever process it is? And how does it impact customer satisfaction, right? Mm -hmm. Because if we have these two data sets that reflect these two different things together, we can actually generate these insights. And we haven't been able to do this before. And so the lack of appreciation or application of, of this um, idea this this notion that HR can actually be incorporated with other elements in the business to generate these insights will prevent organizations from getting all that they can get out of out of people analytics. That's the argument, I think. Right, I see. I, I take your point. So it's sort of like in organizations, sometimes the HR function is seen as peripheral to the strategic thrust of the organization. So I think another. Another impediment to um, successful adoption of people analytics that have been mentioned in a few of the studies, again, that we read for today was the overemphasis that many organizations place on descriptive analytics at the expense of predictive and prescriptive analytics, which are, I would say, higher level um, analyses that can be done, at least with some people analytics systems that... Um, presumably provide more sophisticated and possibly even more useful insights as to how we need to make decisions and act within organizations. So can you draw a quick distinction between descriptive, prescriptive, and predictive? Yeah. So descriptive analytics essentially answer the question, what happened in the past, right? They might... What's there? Yeah. Yeah. What's there? What happened? Um, if you think about many of the dashboards that many of us have seen before, not only HR dashboards, any any type of management dashboard that presents, um, you know, how many sales, well, how did we track with our sales over the last four quarters? And how did we track with our sales in different regions? And what is the ranking of our salespeople for different product lines? You know, things like that, that have happened in the past, um, whatever it is, quarter, two quarters, year, 10 years, right? These are all analytics that are, described as predict as descriptive because they've they describe what has already happened and we can understand important trends in the data in order to kind of have a deeper understanding of what might be some of the drivers behind what we've seen before but that's all that they do they only represent what has happened before and they don't necessarily explicitly or directly inform how we might want to drive decisions into the future mm -hmm. And so um, to complement this, we, we have what's called as what's called predictive analytics, right? These are um, types of analysis that try to answer the question in different ways, what will happen 
right? Mm-hmm. Forecasting, for instance, who might, like we said before, who is most likely to quit within the next six months based on their performance in the past or based on how how long it's been since they last, um, you know, got a promotion or a raise or what have you. Or, you know, we want to estimate the level of risk um, involved in loaning a certain amount of money to a certain person based on that person's mm-hmm. behavior in the past or people with a similar profile and how they've behaved in the past, right? So it's trying to extrapolate from patterns that we've observed about things that have happened before to extrapolate from them into what might happen in the future. So these are predictive analytics, which are, according to the literature, less often used by organizations. And mm-hmm. then we have prescriptive analytics, and these are systems that try, or applications within system, within systems that try to answer the question: What should we do? Yeah. Right? So what, based on the how prediction, should we act going forward? Yeah, based on the predictions that we have about the trends that we're seeing and how they might play out in the future, what is then the best course of action in order to maximize a certain outcome that we we want? And one of the, one of the metaphors that I've heard used here that I th- think is kind of interesting is sort of operating based on descriptive analytics is like driving a car looking at the rear view mirror where you're trying to drive forward but you're looking only at what's behind you mm, yeah. rather than what's in front of you yeah so the the lack of emphasis on predictive and prescriptive analytics and the overemphasis on the rear view mirror as it were is another obstacle or impediment to a highly successful implementation of people analytics. And by the way, we should say that the the ability to move beyond descriptive and apply predictive and prescriptive is also related to some of the things that we mentioned before, like having people who are highly statistically um, literate, right? Because you have to be able to understand what it is that you're reading and what, what recommendations you're getting and what is the basis for these recommendations in order to actually make use of them. And if you don't have these skills, these analytical skills, it's going to be much more difficult for you to be able to use these um, these applications. Okay, so now that we've talked about the main drivers and impediments, let's see what research says about some of the main impacts of people analytics. So you've alluded to this, actually, you've done more than just allude to this. I mean, I think you were pretty explicit before that this is an emergent field. Mm-hmm. Um, these systems have been used by organizations for the past few years, but we don't have decades of experience with them and uh, you know, a well-established track record of what they can actually achieve in organizations. But what we're seeing is, I guess, an emerging, a budding uh, body of, of evidence that suggests what might we see, what we might see in the future. Yeah. And on the positive front, there, there are a number of I think good indications, right? There are various case studies, certainly, that sort of emphasize uh, benefits. Um, you know, ab- ability to sort of retain employees. You know, increases in retention, right? By by actually using the analytics to then guide workforce development, training, things like that. You can see uh, substantive increases in employee retainment every time an organization. Uh, uh, hire someone, they want that person to stick around, right? This is something that I think often, uh, you know, we we often sort of pit managers or uh, business owners against employees where we think they're adversarial. But, you know, if you're hiring someone, you want them to be there. You want, want them to stick around. And so if you can increase retention and 
and enhance people's performance over time, that's a good outcome for everyone, right? That's that's the ideal. Yeah, and some of the um, some of the evidence we saw uh, where what we would call anecdotal evidence based on observations taken from a a, a, sim, a single case study. <clears throat> so this one study by um, Kyrat and Boxall referred to uh, an example from an airline company which deployed predictive analytics, a predictive analytics model, um, which led to a 10% reduction in employees on being on call while while being able to maintain their operation levels, thereby cutting significantly cutting um, costs. It saved them millions of dollars in, in yeah, um, millions savings, of savings, right? Right, because they were able to better manage the the placement of of um, of shift workers, and it saved them a lot of money in this way. I think that same I think that same study uh, or that same paper rather also called attention to a I believe it was a video game company where they identified a pattern in sort of resignations of employees and they noticed that a significant percentage of the people who who resigned were people who hadn't moved from a role in uh, two years somewhere in a two year range. And so what they did was sort of look at their employee base and start uh, implementing a rotational program that would give people more variety and get them exposure to other parts of the organization. And they significantly increased their retention rates by getting people to essentially move within roles within the organization. To me, is a nice example of how you can incorporate data sets from different places in the business, one around job placements and one around resignations, uh, which are not... It's not immediately obvious why these two things would be related, but you can, when you put these things together, you can find correlations in the data that might lead you to make decisions that could be very impactful in a positive way, like we saw here. Mm-hmm. So another study that we looked at um, took a more systematic approach. Um, this is a study by McCartney and Fu, Bridging mm-hmm. the Gap, and they um, they did an online survey involving 155 Irish firms. Uh, the key insight from that study, as I recall, is that the the whole the role of human resource analytics was largely uh, mediated by this evidence based management approach. Meaning that the degree to which the organizations emphasized that we will try to drive our decisions based on evidence was the key determinant of the success or failure of their HR analytics or or people analytics uh, resource use. Actually, they're dependent variable. Um, was performance so the examined performance and what drives organizational performance and they had an interesting model so the the first variable in the model was access to hr technology right and and Mm -hmm. they measured this by having people answer questions or statements rank statements on a Likert scale like my organization has the necessary tools to conduct hr analytics my organization invests in those tools and has the appropriate tools for performing HR analytics. So that's access to technology. That's the first mm-hmm. variable that they looked mm-hmm. at. And um, the second variable that they examined was HR and analytics resources. And there they looked at people's assessment of the data quality within their business, analytical competency, and strategic ability to act. Right. So access to HR technology leads to HR analytics and HR mm-hmm. analytics leads to based on their model, evidence-based management, 
right? And they measured EBM, evidence-based management, by having people respond to statements like, we translate an issue or problem into an answerable question, or we Mm -hmm. weigh and pull together the evidence, or we evaluate the outcomes of a decision, right? Statements like this. So this is EBM. And finally, evidence-based management leads to performance, uh, which again was self-reported. That was a subjective measure. Um, so they had people respond to statements like this. Compared to our competitors, we are able to attract essential employees. We're able to retain employees. Or we have a superior customer service. So it was a, mm-hmm. a subjective and a comparative measure. Now, one of the things that occurred to me here, though, is that the the ultimate impact of the people analytics which they called HR analytics, was not terribly significant. So let, let's just go through the numbers real quick. Sure. So they found that access to HR technology, right? This is which is the people's assessment that their organization actually has the required technology, is very significantly significantly and strongly related to HR analytics, mm-hmm. which measures or reflects data quality analytic competency. And then HR analytics was significantly, but not as strongly related to evidence-based management. And evidence-based management in turn was um, very significantly and pretty strongly related to organizational performance. Right. But the test for mediation suggested that the, the presence of the HR analytics influences organizational performance but that that effect is entirely channeled through this evidence-based management, the degree to which the organization adopts evidence-based management. Can you say that statement in a more intuitive way? Because I think it's a, it's an important point. Sure. So the the their test for media, mediation means the degree to which so, some other step has to be involved, right? And so... The, the test for mediation suggests that HR analytics does have an impact on organizational performance, but only to the degree that the organization has an evidence-based management approach, right? So if the organization says, you know, we, we use data to make decisions, we try to frame things in terms of questions that we can answer, if they have that commitment to, to managing based on evidence, then the presence of HR analytics tools makes a difference. But if they don't have that philosophical orientation, then the presence of HR or people analytics tools does not have a terribly significant effect. So it actually goes back to the point we made before about the importance of having a culture in place that that respects and promotes people's willingness to act on the evidence that they're that they're um, I was almost going to say confronted with, but that they're presented with, right? So it is that willingness, that that open mind that we should have to change what we think, our judgments, our decisions, our policies based on the evidence that we're seeing. So that's that's the essence of EBM, of evidence-based management. And I think right, it's, a, right. it's a really important point. So just having the technology in place, and now we see empirical evidence for this, just having the technology in place and the resources is not going to be sufficient to drive organizational performance if we don't have that, you call this philosophical, but I, I think it's a very practical orientation that we need to have as a business to actually act on the evidence that that these systems produce. Yes, I agree. I agree. And I do think that's a a very important point. I think overall, when we look at the impacts of the tools, again, based on largely anecdotal early evidence, 
it seems like they can have real substantial positive impacts on organizational performance. I do think we should we should turn to at least some discussion of the potential risks and downsides because I think when we look to the downsides or potential downsides of these tools, I think we could sort of categorize them into two different ways. We can look at the practical downsides and there are some substantive ones there and there are ethical downsides. And it seems to me that a lot of the discussion has gone to the ethical downsides. And I think those are ones we should touch on, but I think the the practical downsides are also significant and, and worthy of note. Yeah. So I think we can, probably talk about at least one or two of them. One is the idea of, of path dependencies or the, the somewhat ironic consequence that these tools may have in terms of actually limiting innovation rather than increasing the, the ability of an organization to, to be more adaptive, agile, and innovative, which is often what, what managers think that they're going to get out of using these tools, right? To create new insights that are going to allow them to change things around. And and be more innovative that way. But one of the traits or propensity of using these these, um, algorithmic systems is that they tend to extrapolate from the past into the future, thereby reinforcing the same patterns of behaviors and decision-making that we've we've had in the past. So we said before, for example, that oftentimes these systems would would be used to make hiring decisions. Right. Mm-hmm. And especially when we're dealing with machine learning algorithms that are trained on data sets that represent past behaviors, past patterns, past decisions. If we use them within an organization, let's, as an example, take a, a consulting firm. And if that consulting firm has tended in the past to recruit people, applicants from certain schools who have certain types of degrees in, management or MBA or analytics or things like that. And this information is going to be captured in the hiring data sets and that these data sets are going to be used to train their algorithms. Then the recommendations that these algorithms are going to produce to drive or guide future decision, um, future hiring decisions are going to basically represent the same patterns. And what's going to end up happening is that you're yeah, and what's going to end up happening is that this organization is going to keep hiring the same types of individuals over and over again, thereby effectively limiting their capacity to innovate and do things differently. Yeah, the clearest example of this, and this definitely bleeds, this shows where practical and ethical bleed together. There was a, a very prominent uh, case from Amazon a couple of years ago. Amazon used a tool like this to identify their top performers. And um, the algorithmic tool, as we've talked about in recent discussions, is largely inscrutable. So we don't know what it was making its decision based on. One of the things they discovered is that they basically weeded out female applicants because their prime, their previous past performers had been male applicants. And so the algorithmic tool said, well, you should be looking for people with the following characteristics. And they suddenly discovered that one of those characteristics was being a man. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Amazon had to scrap the tool altogether because they were reinforcing basically a, a, a sex-specific hiring practice uh, simply because of the prior performance of their 
organizational members. We should note that oftentimes, I hope in the vast majority of cases, these decisions are not intentional, right? It's not like there's any one specific individual who designs the algorithm in, in order to intentionally exclude females or people from the humanities or whatever the case is. It's just the nature of these algorithms and the way that they're designed and trained that they tend to replicate existing biases and data sets. Sure, absolutely. Well, and and that leads, I think, to another one of the practical implications is that it, it can impair transparency rather than enhancing transparency, right? Yeah, um, I, I think that's both practical, but also uh, a very ethically laden point, right? Which is that oftentimes these algorithms, and especially when we and when we talk about these generative AI systems, which are <clears throat> becoming increasingly increasingly popular and they seem to pop up in all sorts of different contexts and, and domains. And I think that's gonna that's a trend that's gonna continue into the at least near future, is that we don't know, we don't really know how they how they behave, how they act, how they make decisions. And they're largely inscrutable, they're largely opaque, even to the people. And, and the organizations that design them. We don't really know how they work and why they make the recommendation that they make or why they produce the text that they produce. And it's one thing when it's theoretical and you use it um, you know, to write an essay in history or whatever, but it's quite different when, we, when you use these tools to make decisions about people and their employment and whether to hire them or to fire them or to promote them or give them a raise. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's... It's one thing when you have an asshole boss and and that person decides not to give you a raise or not to promote you. So you can have a conversation with this person, hopefully, and and understand what was the reasoning behind their decision. But when you have an algorithm for a boss, like if you drive for Uber and a decision is made to terminate your employment for whatever reason, then there's no recourse, right? Right, First of all, you, you don't know why that decision was made in many cases. And there's no one to speak with because there's no human boss on the other end of the decision. It's just an algorithm. Yeah, which I think actually highlights an, another element of the practical implications, which is this illusion of control. So I think, what was the study? Uh, Girmindel et al. in Egypt, uh, European Journal of Information Systems from last year, one of the things they noted was this illusion of control, right? That the tools will tend to gravitate organizations toward often a, a small number of measures, right? So that's sort of the reductionism element that you get to, you're looking at just a couple measures of performance and it gives the organization and the decision makers this perception that yes, we know what to look at and and we can control these things, but you might be filtering out all kinds of aspects of performance and organizational life when you do that. Yeah. And and there's another element of this reductive point that, that you're making, which is the reduction of human beings from being fully fleshed subjective individuals to basically being data objects that are mm-hmm. reduced down to their digital residues. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we talked about how P- uh, HR professionals need to be upskilled and and know how to design surveys to capture whatever it is, employee engagement. But even the best survey, and surveys tend to be quantitative for the most part, and the data that you feed into this system definitely has to be quantified if it's not already quantitative, meaning numerical numbers. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. um, and you can capture people's views or attitudes or emotional states or whatever it is in a quantitative way with Likert scales and, and all the rest of it. But the fact of the matter is that no one gets up in the morning and says to themselves, yeah, you know what? I'm feeling three and a half out of seven today, or yeah. I'm, I'm motivated five and a half out of eight today. That's, that's not the way we, we are wired as individuals. We are, we're qualitative beings. Life is qualitative, right? And, and the quantification rendering of, of qualitative experiences is going to be by default, by its very nature, reductive. And that's a problem. Yeah. So, uh, so there's something in this, all of this literature that occurs to me, and I would love to get your thought on this. Marshall McLuhan, who was a, uh, 60s, I mean, he, he lived, uh, I don't know if he lived in the 2000s, but he was a media theorist. And one of his premises is this idea of, um, retrieval, like all new medium, all new media in some way taps into older media or older trends. And as I'm reading through all of this research on people analytics, one of the things that kept coming back to me was Taylorism. So in the early part, do, do you know what I'm talking about? In the early part of the, I guess it was the 19th century and early 20th century, you had this guy, Frederick Taylor, who was advancing what he called scientific management. And his whole premise was, we need to we need to drive our decisions based on scientific principles and not based on human intuition. Mm -hmm. And so we should take work and we should, you know, he did time studies and space studies and where he said, change the business process to make it more fluid. And Taylorism, when we look back at it now, generally has a negative connotation. But Taylor thought he was doing something awesome for everyone, right? Like he thought... His scientific management would make people's lives, their work lives happier and they're more satisfying and uh, and more effective organizations will be more efficient, all that, all, all good outcomes. I think, again, when we look back on it, we say he was reducing people to numbers, right? He, or he was reducing people to minute tasks because one of the things that scientific management from Frederick Taylor had was taking complicated processes and breaking them down into very small tasks and then having people perform those small tasks, mm -hmm. which might make the organization more efficient, but made people in a lot of cases miserable because they were, you know, like turning a screw or, you know, some super redundant activity. And it's very much, uh, I'm seeing very much the same thing when I look at the, the people analytics vision. Yeah, for sure. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I I agree, and and actually, people refer to it um, sometimes as digital Taylorism because there's a lot of of the ideas that came out of the scientific management that are I think are incorporated into this whole notion of of people analytics, which is that sure. data data is central to driving this should be central to driving decisions in organizations because it's objective and scientific, unlike human cognition, which is subjective and intuitive, which is the opposite of scientific. Mm -hmm. And and the only way, the only valid way to know what to do is based on evidence. And that should drive everything, every single decision that managers make. So I think there's a lot of commonalities there. And in fact, when you think about this, one of the principles that, that Taylor promoted was placing the right people into the right positions. Right? So the whole idea of, of running psychometric tests for applicants started with him with his scientific him, management yeah. 
Right. And when you think about the use of people analytic, analytics today to do the very same thing, I think it's just a continuation of the same trend. I think that the connection is that direct between Taylor and scientific management and what we're seeing today. And I, I also agree with, with the other thing that you said, which oftentimes, at least in some circles, Taylorism and scientific management are demonized. But And I think there's a, a lot to cri criticize scientific management um, for, but I, I also agree with what you said that I, I genuinely think that he he thought he was doing good by people and that by placing people into the right positions that would be suitable to their needs and and skills that everybody would be better off right which which just reinforces the potential for unintended consequences right and again, I think on the ethical front, we see lots of these, right? Unintended consequences, violation of privacy, right? If we're monitoring everyone, we I think you alluded to 1984 several episodes ago. Um, I think that's a real fear that people have with regard to people analytics. If it's basically monitoring everything we do in our lives, it is the telescreen. On speed, yeah, because we're yeah, seeing yeah. some organizations, and again, there's examples from Amazon and, and places like this where they've gone all in on on datafying the workplace. So it's not just people logging into their machines, their laptops, and you know me as an employer keeping track of their keystrokes or what it is that they're writing in their emails or their meetings or stuff like that. It's also having smart cameras all over the um all over the office or the, the production plant or whatever it is. So I can see exactly what they're doing in any given time or putting smart tags on them that physically track mm -hmm. them. Like well, even when they go to the bathroom, they, they're listening to their conversations. They track their tone of voice, right? You know, if they're happy or frustrated or angry throughout their, their workday. And some mm -hmm. organizations, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's just so ridiculous that people would do this. They have it makes me think of that scene in The Naked Gun where uh, Leslie Nielsen, Frank Drebin goes to the bathroom with his lavalier microphone still on. Yeah, <laughs> that was. Uh, but yes, yeah, that was unintentional. Constant surveillance. Yeah. And there are actually people who volunteer to, to put chips under their skin so they can use certain facilities in the office, like the printer or to open mm -hmm. a door. Right mm -hmm. with with implanting a chip under the skin, like that's or you know different types of wearable devices. Um, so in some cases, I think um, certainly organizations can can take this into pretty dark places, which is really not required. I think to to make um, to extract value from these systems, that's just taking it too far. Well, but that's also the question of what are the boundary conditions? Like, well, what is it? What is what is far enough and what is too far? And I think you're right that a lot of us intuitively have the sense of certain things are too far. But I think as managers look at these tools and say, how should we use it or not use it? That boundary is not given ahead of time. Like you don't know what's what's too much. And, and I do think as we start to look to possible violations of ethical guidelines like privacy, like invasion of autonomy, just, you know, getting into people's uh, work lives to the degree that you're you're taking all of their choice and autonomy away. Those are exactly the the questions we have to ask. Like, what is the right balance between driving our decision making by evidence and 
really violating the privacy and autonomy of the people that work in the or, in the organization. Yes. So my reaction before, I, I guess, was more um, an expression of my own personal views, which I, whenever I hear about these things, about those chips being implanted, uh, implanted in under people's skin or those wearable devices that people have to wear in the workplace that record their voice throughout the day. Uh, my, my gut reaction is I would never want to work in a place like this. No, absolutely. I agree. But I guess, you know, the larger societal ethical question around whether this sort of practice is, is warranted. Uh, well, certainly different people have different views and, and different cultures have different standards that they would apply to answer this question. And I don't, I don't, I don't, not sure we want to um, venture out and, and try and answer it right now. Sure. But I think we can, let's go ahead and shift to the key takeaways mm -hmm. that we would have for managers to consider. And I'm going to cheat a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to cheat by going to uh, a study by Gal et al. So I'm going to go to your study with uh, Tina and uh, Mari Clara yep. um, uh, in information and organization. Um, I think the 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 strategies that you articulated for mitigating some of the dilemmas associated with these tools are quite good. So I'll summarize those, and then uh, I would encourage you to sort of add your thoughts. But the first was uh, fostering new technological frames, but basically getting people within the organization, HR representatives probably foremost, to recognize that people analytics is a tool, but it is a fallible tool, right? that it can support decision-making, but it should not replace decision-making. And that you have to make sure that the people aren't simply moving to that sort of replacement type uh, mode. Uh, the second one is fostering new organizational roles. So making sure that the, the personnel have those strong skills. I think the phrase you used, which was kind of funny, was algorithmists. Mm -hmm. Is that the term? Am I right? Yeah, that was Marie Clara's um, um, idea algorithms but uh you know the idea that that these had to be people who understand the ways in which algorithms work and what they can contribute but also uh what their limitations are and then finally uh i think the third principle was fostering new design principles meaning how do we go about building these things and refining them and getting people into that sort of mode of uh designing the tools in a way that it informs us hmm. But it, again, does not replace what we already do. Uh, it, it gives us a certain level of comfort with ambiguity. Yeah. So I think the last one is certainly true in some cases. But like we said before, at least currently, many organizations opt for off-the-shelf products where they don't have much um, say in terms of how they're designed. But right, um, right. I, 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 I think the first two points are certainly valid. And the first one around understanding what these tools can and cannot do is is really crucial because I, I think there's still a lot of missing there are a lot of misinformed people mm -hmm. that believe that these tools are some sort of a, a panacea that are going to solve all their problems because they're well they're algorithms and algorithms cannot be wrong and they're objective and they're rational and they're super efficient they're quick and and they yeah. have they must be correct but like we we've discussed in the last hour or so that's not always the case and people must have a better understanding of what what these tools are how they're designed what they're designed to do and and what their limitations are yeah and recognizing the ethical responsibility that they have as individuals right that they can't simply 
defer to the device or the technology and say, well, you know, whatever it's saying, it gives me my decision. I also, there is also an onus on me to interpret that and to recognize its limitations. And we also have to recognize without, and I'm going to try and not sound overly cynical here, that on the other end of the equation, we have technology vendors who are keen to make money and sure. promote their products, right? Which, yeah. you know, it's perfectly reasonable and sensible on their part to be doing this, to drive their products out and, and make people want to buy them. Um, but we need to keep in mind that promises made and, and campaign slogans and so on and so forth um, should be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah, for sure. Like like with any other so, product that we consume, by the way, right? Of course, but but this one maybe has a higher ethical threshold because it is impacting a large number of people's work lives and and their satisfaction with their organizational yeah. environment. Are there other takeaways that you would want to emphasize for managers? Uh, well, look, I I think I just want to make that point again that we sort of alluded to before, but just, just to make sure that we make it explicitly. I think there's obvious limitations to the way that people make decisions, right? We are intuitive decision makers. We are subjective decision makers. We do get tired and make irrational choices. Uh, we are prone to certain types of heuristics. That's all very well documented. That's not, that's as far as I'm concerned, that that's beyond controversy. And on the other hand, there's these tools that are resistant to all these weaknesses. And I think the the combination of these two things together, human decision-making, human cognition on the one hand, and algorithmic tools on the one hand holds real potential. I don't think, given the current state of technology, that these tools should replace human judgment or human decision-making. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. But I think we need to find creative and, and potent ways to combine these two resources together such that they actually complement each other uh, and, and improve the way we make decisions. So I think the way forward um, is the combination of these two things together, people on the one hand and algorithmic systems on the other. Nice, nicely put. Well, let's wrap that up there. Sounds good. So. Um, are we talking about a few of our favorite things? Yeah. So I think the the favorite things we were thinking of today was um, inspired by some of our reflections here is uh, a couple thinkers or people uh, that we think other people, if they're not familiar with, should check out and sort of become familiar with. When you say people, you mean intellectual thinkers, academics? Yeah. So I, yeah, I guess people, uh, so I guess I, I tend to think of philosophers, but uh, I, I will already say that <clears throat> mine is not necessarily strictly a philosophy person because I alluded to him earlier, uh, but just uh, public intellectuals whose ideas people might want to learn more about. Okay. So who's your, who's your person? So I'm going to go with Marshall McLuhan since I mentioned him earlier. Uh, McLuhan was a Canadian, I don't know what to call him, a theorist. I think his I think his doctorate was actually in English or something like that. But he wound up being largely recognized as a media studies, one of the real fathers of what would now be called media studies. He had this famous quote, the medium is the message, in which he emphasized that um, the 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 structures and the forms of the mediums that we use, the media that we use 
largely impacts the our ability to communicate with others and and the takeaways that they get that they have. Um, but he created four laws of media. I referred to one earlier, this idea of retrieval, that when we have new media tools, it, it often harkens back to something uh, previous. And I, I love that idea because it, it comes up to me all the time. There's the law of enhancement that any new medium should enhance something that already exists or make something easier, uh, improve what we're already doing. There's the idea of reversal, which is that any medium that's pushed too far, uh, it's its effectiveness essentially gets inverted or reversed. And there's the idea of obsolescence, that mm -hmm. any new medium, any new tool that we introduce obsolesces something previous mm -hmm. that we were using. Is there anyone in particular that you think should find his ideas interesting? Any, any one particular line of work or? So I think in, in our current moment, um, when, when, media forms of media are emerging every day um not just social media but social media is sort of what pops to mind uh very easily um i think people uh interested in in new modes of communication will find his ideas uh very interesting and compelling this came up uh just the other day because um you may know that Meta released its uh competitor to Twitter i was going to mention that yeah threads threads yeah and I, I had a discussion with some of the members of my own household. And, and I, I don't know where it's going to go, but my read is that it's, it's pretty much just a recreation of Twitter. And so I am inclined to think that it's not necessarily, I mean, there could there are network effects because the, um, the install base for uh, Meta is huge with Facebook and Instagram and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so who knows? I don't know where it's going to go, but because it seems like just a, a an identical an identical a replication of Twitter, I'm not inclined to think it's going to be huge because I don't know what it enhances. Does it enhance anything that we already have? I, don't I haven't so. I haven't looked at it, um, but I did I did see a funny a funny tweet about it um, just yesterday, and it asked the question: What's the the best way to make sure that the Twitter that Twitter is actually able to survive and surpass threads because currently threads is, is you know, it seems like a, a very serious threat to Twitter. And the answer they gave was that Musk must resign from managing Twitter and move to threads. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, I, well, I think a lot of the drive behind it seems to be the anti Elon uh, motivation, right? Like everyone who hates on Elon's like, I'm going, I'm going to jump over to threads. But again, I just don't see that it that it offers anything new. Yeah, um, I'm. I, do you have a Threads account? The open one? I don't know. Yeah, I have become very, <laughs> as uh, as you know, as we've talked about, my social media presence just keeps receding. Like, uh, like your hairline. Yes, <laughs> exactly right. Uh, my my interest uh, in social media is maybe receding faster than my hairline, unbelievably. <laughs> um, so so I just don't I don't see the draw for me. But uh, but I'll be curious. I I am curious to see where it goes. Yeah. My person is um is Michel Foucault. So uh, Michel Foucault was a French philosopher, historian, psychologist of sorts. Uh, I guess a jack of all trades in a way. 
He's written extensively over the years, or he wrote extensively over the years. He's now passed. And <clears throat> I have to say, one of the reasons, um, <laughs> maybe the main reason I chose Foucault was when we were PhD students, I'm not sure if you remember. Um, so we had a cubicle area for PhD students and um, our yeah, mutual friend <laughs> put up a, a picture of um, of um, Foucault and myself um, next to each other because he he was uh, he had a shaved head. He was completely bald, and I used to shave my head back then. And the, I guess there were certain external similarities, um, and so I was considered to be a, a local incarnation of, of Foucault, I guess. So there was also it's all a, about power with you. It's all about power. <laughs> so okay, yeah. So for for people who don't know Foucault, he um, in his writings across different domains and and many different books. He's um, written about all the different ways in which power manifests in society. Uh, and many of the not so popular today, I guess, critical theorists and people who subscribe to critical race theory and, and extreme... Well, um, critical theory in general, right? Yeah, but specifically critical race theory, which is not very popular today. And maybe critical theory in general is not very popular today either um, because of the way it's been co-opted. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what word to use. Um, a lot of these ideas come from his writings because he's um, mm -hmm. in his writings emphasized how um, power manifests in society and how many relationships and interactions between people, between groups, between societies can be conceptualized in terms and understood in terms of power dynamics um, rather than um, many other things. Um, so he emphasized power and politics, and he also talked about the importance of discourse in um, explaining how societal dynamics unfold. So he's in, in language and discourse, the importance of language. Um, so I, I find many of his ideas still very captivating and relevant today, despite the the bad press that they've been getting in the last few years, mostly because of you guys and all the internal infighting. I would give him bad press. Infighting that um, <laughs> it's happening in your country. You would give him bad press. I would press. give him bad press. No, well, no, I shouldn't say bad press. I, I agree with you that I think his his writings are thought-provoking, interesting. I think it definitely gives you, they're, they're very good for um, perspective taking. Like it gives you a different perspective and an important perspective. Having said that, I'm not a huge fan of uh, of his thinking. Uh, I, I, I see the value. But I think he, you know, the old line to the man with only a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Uh -huh. I think, I think Foucault's got a hammer, but, um, but I think it's, I think it's, it's definitely, uh, it's part of the intellectual life is to sort of explore different people's ideas. I think he has more than one hammer. I think his ideas have been, yes, I'm sure have been oversimplified by, by some people in the, um, in the political right or center right whatever it is these days. But in any case, I think his ideas are um, original. Well, they were original and they are interesting and they're relevant um, still today. Yeah, actually, I think one of the things that this calls attention to is that we should go back and actually read what people wrote. So I think most of the characterization of Michel Foucault today is, is essentially hearsay, right? I don't think people have gone back to read his books and essays. I think they heard what somebody else said about him and are just parroting that. And I think it is incumbent on us to go back and actually engage with the ideas of the people that we're talking about. Yeah. So 
on that note, I, I encourage people, um, brave people, especially to open or to get a hold of his book, Discipline and Punish. Oh, I was going to say, what was the one that starts with the whole description? Of, oh, that's yeah, of the. That's exactly the, the point uh, I was making. So the first couple of pages <laughs> in that book. The public the most, execution. It was discipline and punish, right? Yeah, it's not just execution. It's, it's the torture. There's a, a very detailed, realistic, bloody description of of um, the, the torture and, ex and the public execution, right? Yes. Torture and, and humiliation and execution of an individual. It's it's right. horrific. But if you're into this kind of stuff, that's that's a book for you. <laughs> Discipline and Punished by Michel Foucault. <laughs> if you're into this sort of stuff, you after you read the Marquis de Sade. <laughs> 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 no, I think I think that book in particular has some really interesting ideas for sure. Yeah, no doubt. And okay, all well, right, cool. Let's, let's well, that's a long there. one. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's another long one, but uh, but I appreciate the conversation. Good one. Me too. Okay, talk to you next time, Sean. All right. Talk to you next time.